Well, I am joined now by Dr. Sarah Coakley. We are continuing our conversations with our panelists and their responses to David Neuheiser's Hope in a Secular Age. And so, Professor Coakley, thank you for joining us. And I'll, I'll just ask you our first question, which is, you know, in your mind, what are David Neuheiser's most important contributions in Hope for a Secular Age? Well, first, I'd like to say this is a, a very exciting um, first book from a young author I've known for over a decade now and I feel I've been in conversation with him throughout the progress towards the production of this book um, and there are at least three aspects of it that I think are very exciting and novel. I would uh, delineate them in the following way. First, this is a book that recasts the meaning of hope in a secular or post-secular realm um, and arguably during a hopeless age. And it's a topic that's been rather neglected, you might say, since the 60s and Jürgen Moltmann's very famous book, Theology of Hope, that was written in a very different context when um, you know, the Eastern Bloc of Communism was at its height and his interlocutors were, um, were communists, Marxists. Um, over against which he set a, a, a newly conceived Christian vision of hope. But this is a very different project. And um, it's designed, I think, for a cynical, restless postmodern realm in which the lines between secularity and religiosity are now much more blurred than they seemed then. Um, and it's trying to, as it were, redesign, rethink what it could be to have what he calls the discipline of hope in context. Secondly, exegetically, it's um, enormously creative. I'm actually going to criticize it here in a minute, but um, for an exciting read which brings together two very, very different and often contrasted thinkers, um, the mysterious Pseudo-Dionysius, the Areopagite of the late fifth or early sixth century Syrian context, famous writer of the mystical theology, um, though he didn't himself call it that, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, uh, Jacques Derrida, um, who himself on occasions did uh, write briefly about that earlier Christian mystical negative theological tradition. But uh, most commonly, these two are rent apart in um, exegetical discussions, whereas David actually makes a case for seeing them as highly um, congruent and, and indeed congruent in a way that is politically important and ethically important. Um, and then thirdly, um, this is of course the heart of the project and what makes it most novel what uh, David's doing here is making a case for negative theology in the sense that he um, defines it um, and sees it as conjoined in Dionysius and Derrida um, as having highly important ethical and political significance. So he wants to put forward the notion of a negative political theology, one in which um, the disciplines and practices of um, negative thinking um, could be transformative in our culture and for our religiosity. And this particularly makes my heart warm because I too um, like to argue that mystical theology is not merely um, a matter of self-preening or a matter simply for an elite form of religiosity, 
but that it has wider cultural, political, and ethical significance. So those are my three high points of the book, um, and what makes it for me one of the most exciting new publications um, in this current generation. You've already sort of hinted at this, but what are questions that arise for you in response to the book, whether in criticism uh, of, of Hope in a Secular Age or uh, in terms of questions it might raise for related works, themes, or phenomena? Um, let me focus here, I think, on two major arenas, though there are some sort of subclusters within them, as we'll see. Um, the first and the sort of biggest elephant in the room, I suppose, with this book is, from a theological perspective, is whether the very definition of hope or the definitions of hope that David give us in this book are, as it were, too minimal um, um, in comparison with a fully theological and Christian understanding of hope as a theological virtue. It's worth um, just quoting, I think, one or two of his most significant definitions. For instance, as early as um, page two, he writes, um, this book is premised on the conviction that both the disappointment and the persistence uh, in our lives is real and neither should be forgotten. And thus in my understanding, he says, hope constitutes a disciplined resilience that enables desire to endure without denying its vulnerability. Um, and there are similar other definitions even in the introduction um, that follow. But I think the main uh, features here are that hope um, is not just an affect, it's a discipline. It involves um, some kind of resilience in the context of disappointment and frustration, but it doesn't leap to deny its own vulnerability. So it's, it's a kind of existential condition um, that, as it were, thrusts forward to a better future, but doesn't triumphalistically take it for granted. But nor does it um, either despair or presume that um, the problems can be fixed um, in any quick way. Now, I would just like to say that um, <clears throat> The, the notion of uncertainty, which seems to be core to David's definition here, um, which at the same time constitutes a discipline, sounds to me more like um, an Aristotelian pagan virtue, such as courage or, or fortitude, rather than what I would call fully um, Christian hope, because Christian hope is a theological virtue. Um, and a theological virtue that um, is presumed, therefore, to be an outcome of the life of sanctification and grace. And um, it, it can't really be understood um, in New Testament terms without the full narrative of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. So in Hebrews, as we know, it's, the, um, uh, it's a matter of the belief of things to come, the things hoped for. Um, in Paul's theology, which is very, very briefly, but hardly discussed in David's book, which I think is, is, a, is, a, is a gap, um, it becomes one of the three special um, uh, virtues along with, um, with uh, um, with, with charity um, and uh, uh, faith. Um, 
And in Romans 8, which David does briefly discuss, it, um, it becomes actually where the sort of fulcrum of our already but not yet status uh, within the life of Christ. So um, my worry here as a Christian is that although this is a heroic attempt to, as it were, repars hope for a secular age, it can't truly deliver the goods that it still alludes to. Um, and I think along with that goes um, a tendency to straw man those writers who um, wish to make a clearer distinction between um, the hope that uh, in a secular way David uh, outlines and, and a fuller, richer vision. For instance, I think it's well worth taking time with a, an, an extraordinarily important contrastive volume by David Eliot, um, Hope and Christian Ethics, which came out just before David's book was finished and therefore he's able to refer to it extremely briefly in his introduction. But he doesn't do it justice, I think, because he represents um, this alternative Thomistic rendition of hope as a kind of triumphalism, which I think if you read Eliot's book closely, he takes extreme care not to fall into. Um, uh, it's certainly not um, uh, a kind of presumption of, um, of theological um, vindication in any short-term way. What it is, it's stepping into a whole realm in which the infusion of supernatural virtue is the context in which hope is redescribed. So there's much to discuss here. Um, and uh, the question is whether, the fundamental question is whether hope is one of those categories that is capable of redescription in non-theological terms. Um, and if so, I certainly think this is a worthwhile endeavor. The question is whether it loses its legs in, in the process. Um, then, Let's also look at my main exegetical um, worry, which I would like to spend more time on at the AAR session, because I think this is supremely important from the point of view of the um, success or otherwise of the core argument of the book. I've already said how suggestive and exciting I found the rereading of Derrida and Dionysius in this book and the attempt to, as it were, fuse them together. Although it's not a total fusion. Um, David can constantly reminds us that the, that the content is not the same, but the, he says that the form is. I was immensely um, impressed by the use of unpublished sources and the complexity and uh, care of the re-analysis um, of Derrida's position um, on both ethics and hope. And although hope is not really a topic of any note in Derrida's own thinking, I think um, a very good case is made in the book that his uh, persistence and discipline in this arena, even if he doesn't call it that, is a feature of his political thinking and his ethical thinking right from the start. I must confess that before reading this book, I had fallen subject more than I ought to have done to the kind of cynicism about Derrida's earlier work that you find in something like Rita Felsky's book, um, uh, uh, The Limits of Critique. Um, and I still think she hits home in, in some regards. But I was really forced to rethink um, my final conclusions on Derrida. 
not so on Dionysius, who is an older friend of mine. Um, <laughs> and here, I think um, the main chapter on Dionysius is possibly the weakest part of the book. That doesn't mean it isn't also immensely rich and suggestive. But what I find odd here is I think that, um, in a way, uh, Dionysius is being read through the lens of Derrida, and therefore he is understood as someone who has uncertainty. Um, I think this is a, a very peculiar way of describing uh, Dionysius's position. Um, uncertainty about the future or about God or about the political status quo or whatever doesn't seem to me to be what characterizes Dionysius when he writes, uh, for instance, one of his more extraordinary passages, um, when he talks about the um, mystical theologian renouncing all that the mind may conceive, wrapped entirely in the intangible and the invisible. He belongs completely to him who is beyond everything. Here being neither oneself nor someone else, one is supremely united by a completely unknowing inactivity of all knowledge, and one knows beyond the mind by knowing nothing. Now, you may think that sounds like complete nonsense, but it doesn't sound to me like uncertainty. It sounds to me like a dazzling darkness into which one is falling and being ecstatically transformed, super new, beyond the mind. And I think that's what's so entranced people about this famous little text called the mystical theology, which by the way, um, Dionysius didn't himself call it. That was a, that was a title added later. Um, so this is a dazzling transformative encounter um, in which the mind is transcended um, in its normal noetic functioning by some kind of ecstatic outgoing. Um, and I believe that this is right to say that this is not only personally transformative, but politically and ethically transformative. That's right. And a lot of people get that wrong. But I think the way that it's described in kind of Derridean terms by David is misleading because it is, of course, undergirded by the entire um, narrative of Christian salvation, including very explicit Christological apprehensions, which come out more clearly in the letters than in the, um, than the, in the mystical theology, and by the extraordinary ontological and metaphysical frameworks presented in the other larger texts, um, uh, perhaps most importantly, the divine names yeah. in which the one is represented as that which, as it were, ecstatically reaches out to us and catches us up, um, um, just as uh, it is said, Paul was ecstatically caught up as a great lover. So this isn't the Dionysius that I know and love, um, but um, it's a very interesting one. But we could, we could argue about that perhaps once we get to, um, uh, well, we don't get to Boston, we get to, um, online Boston. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you for outlining uh, some of the, the tensions you see in, in David's uh, analysis of, you know, what I see there are, are the themes of content, structure, and translation, and mm -hmm. whether or not hope can be translated across uh, the Christian tradition to what David would call a secular age and maybe back again. 
Um, These are difficult questions and they lead me to just one final interview question for today, which is, as we do look forward to our live session at the AAR, um, are there questions you would like to pose to Neuheiser uh, that mm. we that we might set the that might set the table for our discussion there. I um I think of these. Um, I'm trying not to repeat what I've said earlier, which obviously includes some implicit questions. But I think of these. I think there's a a, a um, consistent um, ambiguity throughout the book about exactly what negativity means. And I would like to see if he could parse that a little bit more clearly. So I'm giving him notice on that. Um, I think there's a bit of slippage between um, uh, negativity, negativity meaning negating propositions. Now, he's clear that that's not only what he wants to say, but obviously it's, it's part of that, negating um, uh, either philosophical or uh, political or theological propositions. Um, whether it means some kind of existential negativity, some, some feelings of despair and loss of hope and so on and so forth, which he often seems to slide into, which by the way, I don't think is really what Dionysius at any rate has in mind, or whether it means some kind of um, dark transformation that is both personal and political. I think all these are present in the book but I'm not sure that at the end of the book, we have a clear understanding of um, how they're lined up uh, and how they relate to one another. Um, yeah. So that's, that's one question. Um, the second question is really about, um, what David might think is lost when we, um, when we redefine hope without the unundergirding Christian narrative. Um, that's kind of obvious from what I said at the beginning. By the way, I don't think we shouldn't undergo this translation project. Um, it's just my concern is that there is loss um, as well as gain in, as it were, drawing others into the conversation. And, and then thirdly, um, I agree with the exciting project that negative theology has significance for political theology in our age. Um, but when David talks about this involving a discipline, um, I want to know what kind of discipline this means in the political context. Is it just a discipline that is, as it were, personal, that refuses to give up, that um, hangs in there, albeit by the edge of one's teeth? Or is it not something else that involves actual actions, political actions, which are disciplines, which maybe are themselves in some sense contemplative, but which surely should involve some form of transformation of the, um, the political realm as well as the personal realm. So those are my, those are my three. And um, I'm very much looking forward to the discussion and because I think this book is an opener and um, and I think David's going to go on to say a lot more in the future if I read him a right about yeah. what negative political theology might mean and this is a exciting thing that um, I think many other people will want to be involved in as they stand on the edges of secularity and religiosity. Well, you've certainly given us uh, much to think about, uh, and you've certainly given David much to think about as he prepares uh, a response and, and thoughts for the, uh, the AAR panel. And so for now, I will say, Professor Sarah Coakley, thank you for taking the time to provide this response and to outline some of your 
uh, criticisms and questions of the book. And uh, we are immensely grateful for that. And also uh, looking forward tremendously to the live, the live session where you and the other panelists will have a chance to discuss these things. So uh, thank you for taking the time today and we will see you in our virtual panel uh, in just a, a, over a week.